Hey there, beautiful people, and welcome to Articulating, a bi-weekly podcast that highlights the black and brown experience at independent schools. My name is Gina Parker Collins, and I'm an indie school mom, advisor, and founder of Resources in Independent School Education, where we focus on access, application, and enrollment in culturally responsive ways. Yay! And I'm Sam Osborne. I'm a RISE advisor and proud alum of a New York City independent school. I just completed my MBA from Wharton, and I'm now working as a management consultant. Friends, we're back. It's been a while, but please don't be mad. We have another great episode today. Virginia Connor joins us to discuss inclusivity and faith in independent schools. Virginia Connor has been head of school at St. Hilda's and St. Hughes since 1993. In her career as an independent school educator in New York City, Virginia has been a director of lower school, director of middle school, admission officer, and a director of curriculum development. She's also taught every elementary grade. During her tenure, the school's more than doubled its enrollment, granted more than $40 million in financial aid, and built its endowment exponentially. She's also presided over a complete renovation and modernization of the school building. Thanks so much for joining us, Virginia. Follow us on Instagram at Articulating. That's Artic, period, you lady. Thanks for listening. So when we think about religious institutions, schools uh, that are religious, what, tell me what inclusivity looks like in let's say an Episcopal school, like what does, what does inclusivity actually mean? So I am not an expert on all religious schools. I, and, and I would say expert is a word I, I hardly ever use, but I have a lot of experience with Episcopal education and with Roman Catholic education. So from the lens of an Episcopal uh, position, the very nature of the faith is one of inclusivity. It's part of its uh, core principles that the Episcopal Church does not set itself out as uh, the best faith or the only faith, but its its main goal is to lead people to their own spirituality, if necessary, uh, outside the faith, but to be really inclusive and egalitarian about approach uh, approaches to faith. And so, at an Episcopal school, there is no consideration given to a person's uh, identity in terms of religion uh, for financial aid purposes. Um, And that might vary in some settings. You know, I I can't tell you, but at our Episcopal school, there's our access is really focused on, on children in need without respect to their religious identity. Within the Roman Catholic faith, that's a different matter. And you're, I'm sure, familiar with schools like Regis, uh, which is a fully scholarship, entirely tuition-free school. The applicants to that school must be Roman Catholic. And so there are some schools, and I, I, I can't speak to beyond, outside of those schools that I know well, there are some schools that limit access based on a, based on a child's religious or a family's religious identity. But, you know, I will also say that it's not just religious schools, as you know very well, that make these kinds of decisions uh, for their students. But one would hope 
that religious schools lead with these decisions. How does that actually look, though, when we take a look at independent schools and we notice that they're, you know, black and brown folks are among the numerical minority? How does how do how do you kind of really work in inclusivity and equity when you I think sometimes schools feel like that's already built in if, in fact, this is a religious institution. What I can tell you about our school is that our school has tried very hard to hew so closely to Mother Ruth's own life, which was complicated, but whereby her her values of access and inclusion really are the primary focus for us. So in our admission work and in our financial aid distribution, which is overseen by the Board of Trustees, we are held accountable to her vision for the school, which was to be a school for all children of all classes of all and you know I use that term guardedly right but what she meant was socioeconomic levels all, all races creeds cultures economic station it was meant to be as diverse as possible the financial aid program which is close to five million dollars annually and I've seen that grow exponentially over my career you know that that's getting close to 25% of our budget and is the most generous uh, expenditure we have beyond faculty salary. About 40% of our students receive some kind of financial aid. Over, uh, slightly over half of our students are children of color. And uh, our faculty has one of the highest uh, percentages, but it's not high enough. But, you know, it's something we work really hard at. I also was just curious about um, the religious inclusivity. Are there activities like the day-to-day -day activities um, that sort of align with the Episcopal faith? Very much so. So every day we celebrate uh, a period called chapel, which is both for the younger students and the older students, a time of prayer. And there's a, a, a hymn that we sing with the school's beautiful organ. We use a modified version of the Psalter, which is part of the morning prayer tradition of the Episcopal Church. And then a faculty member always gives a homily that's uplifting. And in keeping with the Episcopal identity, we also reference other faiths as well. So we talk about Passover, we have celebrated Passover, we, we reference Ramadan and, and all of the traditions of our students at any moment. So we do a, a, an annual survey of our parents in terms of their religious identity so that we make sure we include those feasts and, and, and important uh, liturgical or, or holy moments for all of our children so that they can see themselves in our faith tradition. That is unique to the, to the Episcopal Church in terms of a, you know, quote unquote, liturgical faith. For the Episcopal faith, you know, we must be inclusive and celebrate other faith tr traditions, and we welcome all of our students to come through and experience this, the school's faith itself. We know that early uh, childhood education is really important to you as head of school uh, at St. Hilda's and St. Hughes and the community as a whole. Um, how do you share with potential prospective parents uh, the value of early childhood education and investing in that at that point in time versus universal pre-K? Like why? Well, first of all, let, let me just say that 
the early childhood years are the most important years of the entire span of the educational experience. And uh, I think increasingly we have to make sure parents understand that because I am seeing, in fact, a shift away from understanding that. And uh, the foundation we create for learning happens before the age of seven. And a lot of parents think that they have to save for college, that that's the most important culminating experience. And I don't know whether that's because it's their last, usually their last educational experience, but in fact, without a really solid- That's the one you brag the most about. Yeah, right. And yeah, it's the one, yeah, like that's, that's the golden you know, ticket. But, but You don't brag about kindergarten. Well, in New York, you brag about kindergarten. Okay, continue, sorry. Right, but Sam, you're right. I mean, if only I could have my way, uh, the people who would be lionized and, and, and so forth are, the, are the, the, the teachers of early childhood. Because I, I always say that learning to separate from your parent is the most heroic act you ever do as a human being. And what happens in a really good early childhood setting is that children leave the, the, the coattails of their parents and walk over that threshold and become confident learners who then go on to decode the symbolic system of, of, of our language and our mathematical system and our science and our music, et cetera, et cetera. In order to have the bravery and the courage to do that, you need to be guided by really, really skillful, trained early childhood educators who invest have invested their lives in anonymity, Sam, because just what you and Gina said, no one remembers the, their nursery school teacher. And yet those are the people who gave you the predisposition to be scholarly, to care about your fellow human beings. It all happens before seven. You know, we've known this since, since the, the enlightenment, read Rousseau, read any, any of the early philosophers. They'll tell you a child's moral compass is set by age seven. So if I had my way, our funding would all be much greater for early childhood. And, and frankly, you know, Gina, can you get as good an education at a universal pre-K as at a private school? Well, I think it will depend largely and individually on those settings. And I don't want to discount any form of education. I want to be really clear that what you need as parents is to understand just how important these years are and to give your entire life to it. Because if you can set a child on that wonderful trajectory of positive experience, you'll give them all the resilience they'll ever need to tackle the complexities. You'll give them the, the attitudes and the habits of scholarship. They will love to read. They will love to go to museums if the family and the community around them will give them those opportunities and show them how vastly important those are. You know. To be sure, I would love for families to choose to make this a priority because I think it's it it changes the course of life. And it makes that college process probably that much easier. So, you know, I'm sure we could all probably go all the way back to kindergarten to, you know, determine what that outcome is going to be like for college. So when we talk about um, the early childhood education, the culture of it, how do educators help um, with self-advocacy at that early age? What does that look like at a place like St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's? How are our earliest learners during these 
formative years that mean so much, how are they learning how to self-advocate? So first, by being, by having a clear understanding that they are sacred. So one of the things we do is we limit the size of our classes. And two, we make sure we've hired unbelievably loving and skillful, trained early childhood educators. And in those small environments where children have the materials they need in a really well-organized and conceived classroom, we help each child, no matter their predisposition in terms of personality or uh, on that continuum of, of uh, uh, outgoing versus more inwardly focused, we help each child to become authentically who they were intended to be. And we say, you know, made in God's image, what did God intend and how can we pull that person out and make that child feel so safe and so well respected that they are free to advocate. They feel seen, heard, and valued. I saw on the website, it was a five to one ratio. What does that actually mean? What is the class size? So the class size really never varies, uh, and it depends on the age. So it's very specific, no more than 10 in the beginner's program, no more than 15 in the nursery, no more than 18 in the junior kindergarten in, in a single class, and the rest of the classes are somewhere hovering around 16-ish per section. The other piece of that, and this is true of every school, is that we have tons of faculty who attend beyond just the homeroom teacher. So one of the reasons why the program here is so extensive is that it, you know a nursery student has a teacher for foreign language, a teacher for art, a teacher for music, a teacher for PE, actually more than one teacher in, in, the, in that case. They have a teacher who's specially trained for the uh, play deck area who helps with gross motor development. We have reading specialists and math specialists and people whose job it is when there's a social issue to intervene and to give support. So every child walks through this school with quite a group of faculty fans around him or her, uh, helping that child develop into the fullest possible. So in relationship to our students developing and understanding that they are special in their own image, how do you, uh, who, who, among the community, among the educators are there to help them with their identity as it relates to experiences even outside of St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's, bringing their whole identity um, into that school, understanding. We also have uh, a team of people in our school, it's called the DEAL team, which stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Leadership Team. And this is comprised of administrators and teachers who have agreed to special training and who have worked especially in those fields to help students and to help all of us uh, keep current with uh, trends and education, but in, 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 in specifics to, to really help us all be part of that team. Every one of us on our faculty would say, yeah, I'm a part of the DEAL team. And every faculty member here in the school receives special training in order to be sensitive, to, in order to be inclusive, in order to uncover uh, 
all of our uh, unconscious biases and to really work um, collaboratively. We are a very tightly knit faculty. Um, you know, I've worked in a bunch of schools and one of the hallmarks of this school is just the strength of this faculty and its mutual respect for one another. It's a really strong group of people who care fiercely about the work that Mother Ruth gave us to do. Talk a lot about it through articulating the role of parents and the partnership and the advocacy of parents and them being instrumental stakeholders in the community to help further the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and justice. Um, do you all hold space for parent affinity groups? Yes, we hold parent affinity groups. Um, and I, I will say that one of the great uh, problems of the pandemic has been our lack of contact with our parents. Um, you know, during the, the, the beginning phases of the of the pandemic, we held a lot of meetings on Zoom for or Google Meet for our for our parents. And affinity spaces were held that way uh, beginning in 2020, the, the, the fall of 2020. We have a job to do, which is to figure out the role of the school in assisting parents in that space, in those spaces. Um, and so I am currently drafting the description of a coordinator for our parent to work with our parents in those affinity spaces. I think there's a need on the part of our parents to have more support from the school community. And, um, you know, that's a really great outcome that parents are looking for more support from schools. And I, I welcome that. Uh, I welcome that opportunity because the job description you said you're describing, would that be a full-time role? Um, and are they, is it that they're sort of the bridge between um, the administrator and the affinity groups? I'm a believer in keeping things as broad as possible and looking at who comes forward. So I don't want to limit this job description at this point to, to anything because I don't want to limit the applicant pool. I want to see who's out there and who would want to work in a very specific and unique setting like ours. Because, you know, we, we our, our religious identity is key in the area of, of how we view our, our equity and justice lens. For us, it's really, you know, a religious identity piece. And it's, it's a piece that I want to amplify, not minimize. So I haven't limited the description as to whether it's full or part-time. I want to look and see who's out there. And then draw candidates who are a good match for us. Well, definitely rises, you know, as a member school, we are here to help you with that piece with parent and affinity groups and the development and the vision and that that coordination between parent and school. And our affinity groups have been tremendous think tanks for our schools. They have been viable resources in helping schools get closer to where it is they say they want to be. I mean, when you are the closest to the marginalized group are the closest to the solution. And what they do need, though, is support in ways to develop more so that they can be more of a help for a school. Because quite frankly, when I think about the work that I've done in my independent schools, whether it was through our affinity space or right on our parents association, 
that is volunteer work. That is that extra layer that comes with um, being compelled to be in community, to be a part of that community, to be a part of the growth and the elevation of my school. So it's it's like this reciprocal thing. Parents want to help our schools identify where where the holes are and ways to help fill them. But at the same time, the school will pour right back into the parent with development work that says we care about and value what it is that you're bringing to the table. So we wanna make sure that you feel supported as well. So it's a very cyclical process, you know, and we have some really great ideas around that. When you think about success and outcomes from the point of the head of school um, along your strategic plan that I'm sure involves a lot of things, um, part of which is D, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and justice. How do you, um, what are your metrics for your success? Well, I think, first of all, you know, being really part of this community and listening and having those exchanges, you know, sure, there's a lot of ways to measure success, ERB results, outcomes, you know, placement lists, uh, annual fund, the 100% parent participation every year, uh, the vibrancy of the board, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the bottom line, we are small by design. And the idea of this school is very much that we teachers, all of us, are deeply caring individuals who want very much to hear from everyone. And this is not a school in which one set of people have a right to the ear of any of us over another. Um, we are very much focused on this notion, you know, it's, it's, everyone is sacred. It, it really is a profoundly important theological uh, I, 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 ideal for us. And so we try to live really close to that. And if someone has something to say, we hear it, we listen to it, we want to seek uh, harmony, we want to seek uh, a resolution. I want to make sure everyone who's part of my 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 school community uh, feels seen, heard, and 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 cherished. So to accomplish that, it really requires a great deal of honesty, a great deal of humility, and a great deal of work that is never ending. So I would never say that I sit back and say, "Up, oh, we are now successful." I, I, I've yet to have that feeling. I am constantly striving for that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm constantly striving for that. Mm -hmm. And we're asking questions of our curriculum all the time. We're asking, is does this work make sense right now? You know, what's a better way to do this? How do we deal with this issue? You know, and in a small school, you know the stories of each and every one of your families and children. And so um, it, it, it becomes a way of life. So I, for me, a metric of success is an elusive goal. I am looking, you know, I have a very high bar that I set for myself and for uh, what it is we're trying to achieve here. It is iterative work. It is iterative work. The strategic plan, is that something is that something that was completed recently? Could you just uh, share any insights that were uncovered from that? So we have been involved in the last uh, almost two years with the subcommittee there on the, the board of trustees has had a diversity. Are you speaking about the diversity strategic plan? 
there were multiple strategic plans that were conducted? Yes. I mean, one has a varying degree of strategic plans going at all different times. There are financial ones. There are, there well, let's, are, let's talk about the diversity ones. <laughs> well, sure. I don't, I don't want to hear about the financial. I'll be quite honest. Oh, you want to hear about the financial one? No, I'm, maybe some other time, maybe for a different podcast. <laughs> so that the, was interesting, though. <laughs> the board of trustees, and by the way, this plan is not fully, fully uh, finished, but the, the, we've had a diversity committee on the board of trustees for, I, I think it's longer than 20 years. Um, but we've been at it for quite a while. And that grew out of uh, the, the, the uh, commitment really at the mission level to being a school that represented all of New York. And the chair of that, of that committee has been uh, Conrad Johnson, who is a professor of law at Columbia University. And he's really guided that work tremendously over the years. So we, we, we got to, uh, really, it was about 2019, and um, it felt like a time to pause and kind of collect all that we had done, because we had been doing things all along with various consultants, various initiatives, various trainings, and so forth, and we felt like it was time to begin to articulate that, that journey and also to look ahead for where we wanted to go. And we didn't know the pandemic was coming. We didn't know uh, a lot of things, but we had begun to uh, flesh that out. And so the, the committee of the board began to work on just articulating the past and then looking forward to where we want to go. And, you know, I, I can't give you the details because they're not completed yet, but I can say that one, one of the uh, aspects of, of working on the, on the plan was to see the vast amount of professional development that this faculty has undergone over the last 20 plus years. And also uh, just kind of taking stock of where we had been. We had formed the deal team, I think back in 2016. And um, we, unlike many schools had never hired a separate diversity director. We had always used this team approach which seemed right for our school at the time. And um, so some of the things that we are currently working on with that committee is to articulate what are the next directions given where we have been and where we need to go. And so I'm not at liberty right now to tell you what the outcome of that will be because it's we are probably, I would say, mid-planning. Mid but uh, you know, I think what we are proud about is our record in the past. Where we're going is clear to me that, um, for one thing I can tell you, we are looking for a parent coordinator. That is for sure. And that is part of uh, what has been agreed to thus far in, in the, the strategic plan going forward. So but, it's been a little bit iterative and you act, you have these insights that you uncover and you make the action in real time. Yeah, I, I guess, well, I, I would say we've done a lot and now we're in the, in the position of determining what all we'll be doing going forward. But, you know, we are committed to the affinity groups that are working. We're committed to making sure that they that they have the resources they need, both in terms of training and material resources so that they can go forward. 
And I think the biggest thing right now that we're hearing from our parents is a need for some guidance in that area. And we wanna be able to uh, make sure that we hear that and, and act on it. Yeah, and to the extent that parents have the wherewithal to really jump in and be community members, which we encourage our families to do, they are a huge resource and can fill in a lot of the gaps if just asked the right questions. So I'm glad that uh, parent partnerships is a, is, a, is a strong relationship that you want to continue to build upon at St. Hilda's and St. Hughes. What do you think, as far as your alumni, what qualities do you think that they are embodying um, unique qualities? So one of the things I hear time and time again from placement directors is how wonderfully our students add to the ninth grade experience by being great community builders. Our, our students are kind, they are good friends, they are compassionate citizens, they look for institutions where they are seen and, and revered. They're academically well-prepared. They're really, really exemplary members of their new communities. So I think, you know, what we do is continue the values of our parents. We train uh, students to be respectful community members and really great citizens, ultimately, who contribute to the improvement of the communities that they land in. And I'm really proud of that, Sam. You know, I'm proud of our students for their advocacy for, for, for those in need. I'm proud of their ability to articulate their passion and their confidence. And I'm proud of the legacy that Mother Ruth has, you know, little seeds in every one of our alumni, whereby, you know, they expect the world to be equitable and just. And if it isn't, they make it more so. That's who a St. Hilda's and St. Hughes graduate is. And I've met them, not only ones that I've trained, which is now you know, closing in on 30 years, but ones that were, were uh, educated by Mother Ruth and her sisters. And there's a real uh, uh, similarity. The, these, these are truly, truly remarkable human beings who, who care greatly about this democracy and the continuation of a peaceful and just society. So if uh, you were to meet uh, a black or brown family, you know, walking down 125th Street after having brunch and you see them with a darling, you know, toddler, what is it, you know, that you would say to this family about St. Hilda's and St. Hughes? They know nothing about it. What do they need to know? I would say, first of all, have I got a school for you? And then I'd say, come see this because this is a place, and you know, Gina, you came on a snowy Saturday when the students weren't here, but I defy anyone who comes through this door not to fall in love with the students, the faculty, and the, the energy, the joy that is absolutely tangible in every corner of this school, but particularly so in the, in the, in the centerpiece of our school, which is our chapel. So all we have to do is get them into the building. And, you know, if that was a Sunday brunch, I would say to those parents, you know, come see me on Monday, I'll make time for you and I'll give you a tour myself. 
Virginia, before you go, I think it would be um, really great if the audience could hear about your path in education and how it led to St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's. So I, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx and went to... BX, BX in the house. I was Dorema and 233rd Street on a Northeast Bronx. What about you? I was Northwest Bronx. Oh, okay. Near Riverdale. Yeah. Right on the border of Yonkers and Riverdale. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I grew up there. Yeah, I I grew up there in the 60s and uh, went to a small, not now extinct Catholic uh, school called Elizabeth Seton Academy. And when I was 10 years old, my father died unexpectedly, leaving my mother widowed at age 47 with five children under the age of 16. And the one sort of legacy that stayed with me of my father's was a, a real focus on education. And my family sacrificed a great deal to send us to this small Catholic school because there were five of us. And, you know, he said to me as I was growing up, the one thing that he could give to us was education. And when he died, which was a pretty profound and, and, and horrifying experience for our whole family, I took that one kernel of, of his life and built that into my own. And I thought if this was that important to my, my father and mother, that's what I wanted to do. And so from really the high school years onward, I stayed very, very focused and kind of centered entirely on a career in education. When I, so I went to a teacher's college for college and then came back to New York to go to teacher's college at Columbia. And originally I was going to do something in policy, but I I kept feeling that call to teach. And my first job was in New York City and I, in an independent school and I never left. It just became the place where I did my work. And I felt that in doing this work, I could really live out another piece of my father's legacy, which was when my father died in 1970, he died without life insurance. And so my mother, who uh, was an at-home mother at that point, immediately went back to work, but there was no way there was tuition to pay for our education. And the Sisters of Charity who ran that school told my mother that our tuition would be taken care of by the order. And um, I received that gift of stability at a time in my life when that was really important to me and to my siblings. And so what I've done for my entire career is really advocate for financial aid because I believe that education is our path forward as a society. And it needs to be uh, accessible to all all people, regardless of their financial situation. There is that dissonance then. So for your passion to fall in the independent school space, but uh, to also be very passionate about accessibility, how do you reconcile that? What, what value do you see in uh, the independent school experience? What drew you to it? Well, it's, it's, it's that very thing. If you look, just if you take New York City alone and you aggregate all of the money that's been allocated for financial aid, which has become greater, not fewer in my career. I mean, there's just been greater devotion to financial aid. It's really quite stunning to see how that's really changed. So I I think within the independent school world, with the the ability to turn those uh, 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 endowments into opportunities for children. That's the exciting, 
that's really the exciting piece of what we're doing right now. And I think at this moment in time, I've never seen more availability of funding for kids in independent school. And I could not be more delighted. Amen to that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Virginia. If you enjoyed this discussion, please pass it on to a friend and don't forget to hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at articulating. That's at artic period you lading. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.